I will explain now the pathway of meditation so that it becomes quite clear how it grows, whether one has actually come to any of those stages yet or not, doesn't matter because at least one knows the route, one has a road map. And then having the road map, one goes back to the point where one is at and keeps traveling. At any road map, it's very important to know what corner one is at. If you've ever tried to read a city map and try to get from point A to point B and didn't know which corner you were at, it's hopeless. One can't go. So we have to be able to assess exactly what we're doing. It's one of the preparing stages. Meditation is divided into five stages. Preparing, adjoining, adjusting, ripening, and maturing. One has to know whichever stage one is at. Now one may not be at the same stage at every meditation session. That too is important to know. And preparation is something that I've already talked about that should happen in daily life. One should have the best conditions that make it possible for the mind to concentrate and to be trained that it doesn't have too much um, tumultuous and chaotic things happening to it which take it away from its inner happening. The Buddha gives several points that are very important for this preparatory stage. The right climate the right kind of food, which actually means, the right kind of food, actually means nothing that is too stimulating. So, also the kind of um, ingredients shouldn't be extremely hot, but it should be mild food. So the right climate, right kind of food, the right kind of people, those that are interested in the same thing, the right kind of conversations, with the right kind of people it's possible. I've mentioned that already. And uh, the right kind of body posture, so that the body is not the greatest of nuisance during the meditation. If one has constant problem with the body, one isn't going to be able to concentrate. And it is a truism to say that nobody ever got enlightened in their legs. It's always in the mind. So one has to know what's more important. And these points which I've just mentioned are words by the Buddha climate, food, people, conversation, 
and right body posture. All of them have to be conducive to the journey within. That's a preparatory stage. The next preparatory stage is the method. The method of meditation. Now, as I told you already, the Buddha taught 40 methods, different ones. We're not going to do 40 methods here, but we have already done four, which we'll do for a nine-day course. And there are a number of others which I will mention. In fact, I have already referred to two more as inside methods, namely one to see the elements and experience the elements within oneself and then go outward to see the connection with all that's around us. And the other one, the impermanence of all that is happening. So we've got already six methods, already too much. But that's the preparatory stage, the method. And I like to call it the key. In order to enter a mansion, the mansion that is within. And this mansion has a locked door, unfortunately. If it wasn't locked, everybody would be living in it. It's the only comfortable place to live in. And it needs attention. But once it has been cleaned up and used again and again, we don't have to re-clean it. It has the brilliance of total purity, this mansion. It has a key. The key is the method. And obviously, like any key, we have to hold it in hand long enough and steady enough to hit the keyhole, which means concentrate. Keep on the meditation subject. Being able to do that means we can stick the key in the keyhole. Now, on the way there, we come to what I just mentioned as adjoining. It can also be called neighborhood concentration, upachara samadhi, which is one step past the preparation. The neighborhood concentration in practical terms means that while we're on the meditation subject, either the breath or the sensations or the loving kindness or the walking or even the impermanence or whatever it is that we have chosen, at the same time there seems to be a cloud going in the back of the head containing thoughts. But they're not clear enough so that one even knows them, what they are, what their content is, nor are they lasting enough to give them a label, but they're there in the background. And because of that background, we can't put the key in the keyhole. 
because that background is still pulling us away from concentration. It's called neighborhood concentration. We are in the neighborhood or adjoining concentration. With this adjoining concentration, there's only one thing to do. A little more willpower. Now, willpower and determination are opposed to achievement. They're not the same thing. Willpower and determination means giving oneself. Achievement means getting something. Getting something is the detrimental mind state in meditation. In fact, it's a detrimental mind state in life, but in meditation it is particularly detrimental because to get something will completely take us away from doing it because we can't do two things at once in the mind. So the determination, the willpower which is needed at the stage of neighborhood concentration is I'm going to give myself more to the meditation subject. I'm not going to hold myself back. Now a person who is able to love easily and well can do this much easier because they have already that inner ability of giving themselves. A person who is always on the fence if I give myself, maybe it's not going to turn out well. Maybe the other person is going to give the same thing back or something of that nature will find it very difficult. The two are completely connected. Giving oneself in love is exactly the same thing as giving oneself in meditation because giving is giving. And it has to have that ability with it, that giving ability of not trying to hold parts of oneself back just to make sure that one is still in control nobody's in control of their mind who cannot at any given moment either concentrate fully or think what they want to say everybody else is victim of the mind and this is the most interesting aspect for many people when they finally understand that this is exactly what they are, victim of their own thoughts, because they cannot, because of non-training of course, non-training in meditation, they cannot think exactly what they want to think. The moment we can think exactly what we want to think, we'd never be unhappy again. Only a fool becomes voluntarily unhappy. So it's obvious that we're never in control until that happens. So the giving oneself means that one gives up the mistaken idea of being in control and particularly the wanting to be in control and just giving oneself to the moment. Now that is the necessary mind state at the time of neighborhood concentration. Neighborhood concentration is a very common um, hindrance, I would say, which happens in meditation courses because we sit and do practically nothing else. 
So a neighborhood concentration is not so difficult to achieve, but it doesn't go anywhere. It stays in the neighborhood. And since we're already in a nice neighborhood with that neighborhood concentration, we might as well get into the meditation properly. So that willingness to give oneself totally. Soon as the meditation is over, one can have oneself back in full force. It's just temporary. But that temporary giving oneself does something. Not only does it induce proper meditation and make it possible, but it also makes it possible to recognize if one is wide awake and aware of what one is doing, makes it possible to recognize that only then can peace arise. As long as I'm trying to control or trying to be there, peacefulness is always escaping. So this is one of the insights which arise from that particular ability to give oneself. Eventually, if one takes meditation seriously and continues with it, everybody is able to do that. It's a matter of time and, of course, a matter of diligence. If one continues, there's no way one will not come to that point because otherwise it's much too frustrating. So having been able to do that, to fall into the meditation subject and to stay there means that we've got the key fully in hand. And as we have the key fully in hand, we're obviously able to open the door, unlock it. From a practical standpoint, it appears like this. Because the mind becomes calmer and calmer and less and less disturbed by all its usual machinations, the breath becomes like what? It becomes calmer and calmer and much less disturbed. And as the breath becomes calmer and calmer, it becomes more difficult to find. It can come to the point where we can't find it at all. And if one is not prepared and hasn't been directed, the natural immediate reaction is one of astonishment and even fright. And the mind says, goodness, what's that? I better breathe a bit more. Well, that stops the meditation very effectively. So one needs at that point either the ability to give oneself fully, which some people do have without instruction. Most people don't. They need the instruction because most people do have this immediate reaction, which is quite natural. At that point, the breath is no longer the meditation subject, obviously, because it isn't there strong enough to notice it. But what happens at that point is that a very excellent and very pleasant and very rapturous sensation arises, which then becomes the meditation subject. Now, this sensation very extremely pleasant and one doesn't ever have to ask whether is this it or isn't it 
because it is so pleasant that one knows that's got to be it. This is, so to say, the entrance hall of this mansion, which has seven more chambers, seven chambers plus the entrance hall. I always call this the entrance hall because that's how one gets in. One has to walk through there in order to get to the other rooms. But with the preparation and the preparatory stages and also those adjoining stages, we have two factors which I've already mentioned, but I will mention them again because they have a very important function and they belong in here. The first one is the initial application to the meditation subject, which, as I told you, counteracts sloth and torpor, laziness and drowsiness, the mind which is slothful and doesn't want to do anything. The initial application to the meditation subject, which everybody does when they're meditating, has this ability to counteract that. We have five factors of meditation, of which the first two, the first one is preparatory, and the second one is the adjoining one. And we have five hindrances, and each one of the five factors of meditation counteracts one of the five hindrances. And as they do that, we have an automatic purification system, like an automatic washing machine just have to throw it in and it comes out clean. And the better the washing machine, the cleaner it comes out. Well, that doesn't relieve us from keeping our clothes clean during the day. It's the same thing with this. As we have the automatic purification system through the meditation, it doesn't relieve us from purifying in daily life. And I've already given you those um, guidelines for thought and emotion, which happens in daily life. The very first one, the initial application to the meditation subject, is followed by the sustained application. They are compared to the hitting of the gong and then the sustained sound of the gong, like this. First you hit it, then the sound remains on the meditation subject that is the sustaining of the concentration now the first one counteracts what the Buddha called being in prison the procrastination the mind which does not apply itself to spiritual growth and profound uh, consideration but stays on the material level where it has to act in order to stay alive. If we just think, speak and act for our livelihood and for all the things that we need to stay alive, we're wasting our time. None of us are going to stay alive forever. It's a waste of time to spend one's life trying to do just that. There's far more to a human being and far more to life than doing that. Naturally, it is an underlying necessity, but it is isn't all there is. 
and it can never satisfy. So we have the first thing that happens is when we sit down, we counteract the kind of mind which is constantly concerned only with the marketplace. And therefore, we've got to do it every day because the marketplace will always intrude. It's all around us and it's totally within us too. So it's always intruding. And the second one, the sustained application, if it happens, it effectively counteracts skeptical doubt. Now, skeptical doubt is a very um, harmful quality in one because it doesn't only concern spiritual matters. Skeptical doubt is particularly developed in people who can't give themselves. They find it difficult to love, they can't give themselves. So skeptical doubt is their defense system. How do I know this is correct? It may not be. It may be to my detriment. It may not be to helpful. I'm intelligent enough to know what I'm supposed to do. Why should somebody tell me? And all those considerations which take one away from any kind of spiritual instruction because one wants to rely on one's own intelligence. The Buddha said, don't believe anything out of blind faith, but have enough confidence to try it. And having tried it, make up your own mind. But try it with full and complete self-surrender. Only that means trying. And then, having tried, you make up your own mind. This is a very particular and uh, unique way the Buddha taught. Blind faith was shunned in the Buddhist uh, dispensation, or is shunned. It's all a matter of practice, trying it out. But for that, there is self-surrender necessary. As long as one keeps oneself back from it and say, well, you know, maybe a little bit like this, a little bit like that, but the whole thing, no. You know, it could do something to me. Well, it certainly would. <laughs> it will certainly do something to one. So this skeptical doubt, unfortunately, only completely disappears with what is called stream entry. And stream entry, I don't know whether I'll get around to explaining those steps because the course might not be long enough. So I'll just say that stream entry is one's first personal experience of Nibbana, which means one's first very momentary glimpse of the totality and non-individuality of all there is. In other words, for one single moment, the me thought, the me feeling, the me illusion, the me idea is lost as a personal experience. And having lost it, there is then, of course, a result from that. And with that, skeptical doubt in the veracity of the past and the brilliance of the Buddha and the necessity to practice is completely lost. Only at that moment. 
But on the way there, we diminish our skeptical doubt quite markedly when we can actually stay on the meditation subject. Sustained application. The mind says afterwards, hey, I can do this. It's possible. Maybe the Buddha did know what he was talking about. Maybe I can actually meditate. Maybe meditation is good for me. Maybe I should continue. It's still got the maybe in it. But at least the thought process has changed from what good can this do? Did the Buddha really know what he was saying? Can anybody uh, concentrate on the breath? It has turned around to, hey, I can do this. So self-confidence arises. The doubt in oneself <coughs> is markedly diminished. There's a feeling of security that it's possible to do this. And because one experiences some peacefulness from not thinking, one also realizes that maybe that is the way to find what one is looking for. Naturally, in order to get to that sustained application, one has had some self-surrender already. But having done it, one has a little more self-surrender. <coughs> The skeptical doubt is compared by the Buddha to a traveler in the desert without a road map and without provisions and because of that going around in circles. When one wants to rely on one's own intelligence to find the way one would have to be a spiritual master in order to find that way. And there are very few of those. All the rest of us have the great advantage of being able to follow a spiritual master. But if we have skeptical doubt and want to follow our own ideas, it's like being in the desert and going around in circles. And in the end, that desert traveler without a road map and without provisions is going to be overrun by bandits. That's the simile the Buddha gave. And he also compared it to a um, little pool of water which is completely covered with water plants. So one can't see one's own likeness in it. The mirror is lost. If one is really beset by skeptical doubt, and by the lack of self-surrender, one doesn't know it. Possibly until somebody points it out. And then when somebody does point it out, might, one might be quite resistant to the acceptance of that because one has done it for a long time and one wouldn't like to give up that which is me. So skeptical doubt is actually one of the great um, detriments to renewing one's inner life. Buddha compared people to four kinds of clay vessels. One kind of clay vessel 
has big holes at the bottom. You pour new water in and it runs right out. In other words, you hear the Dhamma and the minute what is heard is already gone. Then there's a kind that has cracks and the water seeps out. You hear the Dhamma and by the time you get to your room it's gone. Then there's a kind that is full to the top with water, with views and opinions, with self-assertion, with resistance, with knowing. If one is full to the top, one can't pour any new water in. One would say that the person that has an awful lot of skeptical doubt would be one of those that's full to the top because there are too many views and opinions. And then, of course, there is the clay vessel that hasn't got any holes, any cracks, and is empty. And you can pour the fresh water. Well, hopefully we belong to the last kind. Or at least to the last kind, maybe where there's only a little residue of old water at the bottom, which we might eventually be able to get rid of too. So the skeptical doubt person has that difficulty of not being able to surrender self because self is supposed to be the one that knows it all. So how can I surrender that which is supposed to know what I'm supposed to be doing? One of the antidotes for that is to go back over one's life and see whether that self that knew everything actually made it happen. Inner peace and inner joy. And if one can be honest enough to say, no, it didn't, maybe that would help to try something new. The opposite of skeptical doubt is confidence. And confidence is something that arises also from wise consideration, which means going over and seeing over one's life and seeing whether all these ideas that one has had have really done it. Now, having been able to have this adjoining concentration, which is this sustained application, we now come to what is called adjusting. That means we open the door, we no longer have the breath available for our meditation if we keep going. We can always take a deep breath and start all over again, of course, which means fumbling around with the key again. But if we adjust to a different situation, then we go to the sensation, which I've already mentioned. Now that's the third step, and that is the, the third factor, I should say. The third factor of five factors of meditation. This third factor is called in Pali piti, P-I-T-I, not pity, not the English pity, but piti, P-I-T-I. And it is translated into various ways. Sometimes it's translated as rapture, but that makes it sound like something out of this world. And it isn't. It's right in this world. Sometimes it's translated as bliss, which is, I think, quite wrong, because bliss is an emotion. This is not an emotion. It creates an emotion, but it is a sensation. It is uh, translated as interest, which is correct, because only then does interest in meditation really happen. Now, there are some admirable people around 
who I've met here and there, who've been meditating for years on end, every morning, maybe even every morning and evening, without ever getting near this ability. Primarily because they weren't instructed and couldn't do it without that. They kept going. Then, of course, getting the instructions, they can immediately get to the sensation. But most people lose interest. They sit down and they try to concentrate on the breath or on the sensations in the sleeping meditation or on the loving kindness or whatever it is. And they try to concentrate over and over again and the mind plays games over and over again. And so finally after two months or two weeks or three months, the mind says, I think I'll better read a book or something. Or maybe I should start Tai Chi. This is one of very common reactions. <laughs> <laughs> so, the interest isn't aroused because nothing seems to be happening. And that's not true, of course. Something is happening. Because even I've already told you what the initial sitting down already does for one. But one can't quite see that. But having now come to this very first step of the meditation, namely the entrance hall of this mansion, which has the lovely sensation in it, interest, stuff. And the mind says, hey, there must be something in it. This is very nice. The mind also says when it happens for the first time, oh, how interesting, or something of the nature, and of course immediately the sensation disappears, and then the mind says, oh, that's a pity, where did it go, how can I get it back? Which is of course a totally wrong reaction. The only reaction that one needs to have at that time is, that too is impermanent. And I say this over and over again, that too is impermanent. While it has to be experienced because it's on the path, on the way, it's too impermanent, also impermanent. And it's also mundane. It hasn't transcended. But it gives the mind the path for transcending. We have to transcend somehow or other the marketplace. And this is on the way there. But it hasn't done it yet. So this is a sensation which has many different expressions. There are 17 different ones listed. There are probably even more than that because everybody uses different words for them. But the interesting aspect of this whole meditation path, one which I find most fascinating, is that everybody does exactly the same thing. And that the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages have done exactly the same thing. In fact, I've taken the simile of the mansion with the chambers from Teresa de Villa's interior castle. She's done exactly the same thing. But the verbiage and the expression, the terminology, and the visualizations, the ideas are all totally different. And those people who read it think, oh, that's Christian, or that's Buddhist it isn't at all that I stake my life on 
it isn't either this nor that. It's the ability of the mind to transcend the marketplace. And whatever triggers we use depends on where we have learned them. Obviously, Teresa de Villa, being a Catholic nun of Jewish background, was using her Christian teaching and was using Jesus as a bridegroom. And her verbiage and terminology is extremely colorful and visual and makes that very difficult for people these days to relate to it because people do not have that kind of background and teaching anymore. The Buddha's words and verbiage and terminology is pragmatic. It doesn't have too many um, visualizations in it. Some are uh, visual, some things are explained as similes. But again and again, the similes are extremely practical because the Buddha was a very practical person. So it's much easier to relate to. But in the end, it all comes out in the same thing. It's the same mountain with the same summit and the same truth. And when we call it Christian or Buddhist or Hinduist or whatever we call it, that's man-made. Neither Jesus nor the Buddha were out to form a new religion. They were out to reform theirs, the one they got born into. Jesus wanted to reform the Jewish religion. He wanted to throw out the money changers out of the temple where they certainly don't belong. And the Buddha wanted to throw out the belief in the Brahmins pouring ghee and milk over the stone statues and that was going to enchant something with it and that was going to get one to happen. And what happened? Both of them were saddled with a new religion because the old one didn't want to be reformed. Naturally, what happens then when the master of that religion is long gone, the one who has initiated it and given the uh, direction, it again becomes corrupted. No need to elaborate on that one. So, the fascinating part is that once one does what are called the jhanas, and reads the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages, Meister Eckhart, who's very difficult, Teresa de Villa, um, John of the Cross to a certain extent, but um, Jose de Asuna, who was a teacher of Teresa de Villa, all of these people were all doing exactly the same thing. And it's, asim- it's actually sort of like a detective work to see within all this very strange terminology that basically and pragmatically it was just that what the Buddha taught to of course they had never heard of the Buddha so um, their teaching was giving them that terminology and the other interesting part about it all is that every single person does exactly the same thing which then to the one who has that kind of overview that there aren't any separate minds. Everybody can do it. And everybody will do it if they stick around long enough. Some people are very fortunate. They can do it very quickly. They can do self 
surrender very well. Those who have a hard time with self-surrender find it more difficult. The analytical mind finds it more difficult usually, but that too is only a generality. It's not always true. It's a matter of time. Those that are lucky enough to do it quickly are, of course, then remaining with the meditative path and also find the spiritual path of the greatest importance in their life. For those who take, the longer, who take a longer time, they very often have to go on byways and find other things to do in the meantime until they get to this. The sensation is of different kinds. It can be floating, lightness as, as opposed to heavy, it can be tingling, it can be um, a feeling of rising, elevation. There's certainly always sensation, warmth, all-pervading, feeling of um, lack of physical substance, all sorts of different ones. Every single one of them, totally different body feeling than what we're used to, and most interesting and very lovely. Then the next step is to stay on it. As I said before, the mind says, whoop, what's that? And that's the end of that one, the one I have to start again. Or the mind says, you how nice, I want it back. Well, that doesn't work either. One has to be sure to know that it's only one stage on the way. It's nothing in itself. It's only an entry. But it has a very important function. And this important function needs to be known so that one knows why one is doing what one is doing. This is also one of the difficulties for meditators, specifically in the West. They hardly ever know why they're doing what they want to do. They, they have heard of meditation as something great, or everything else has already failed, so let's try meditation. But what it really does on each step of the way is usually a hidden mystery. The Buddhist teaching was no mystery. In our tradition, which is the Theravadan tradition, we have five mudras, five hand movements of the Buddha. In the Tibetan tradition, they think they have 24, but we only have five. And one of them is the Buddha depicted, the Buddha statue depicted, with the left hand with the palm outward in front of the left knee. And that means, no secret, when the Buddha was on his deathbed, he said, I have taught with an open hand, never with a closed fist. Everything you need for enlightenment, I have taught you. Now, continue with diligence. That's all. There's no secret, no mystery. It's all written down even in what is called the Pali Canon. And the Pali Canon contains in Pali and in English, everything that has been transmitted from the Buddha. 
about 17,500 discourses and five books of rules and regulations for nuns and monks <laughs> and seven books of the Abhidhamma which is the call Abhidhamma means higher Dhamma, higher teaching but it is sort of like an impersonal enumeration of all the things that the Buddha talked about in the suttas, in the discourses and having been put together in that impersonal way 89 states of mind 89 states of consciousness and that type of thing extremely valuable for people who are that way inclined analytically, mathematically inclined so it's all there no secret the whole thing is wide open all one has to do is read it and do it it's easier to be told and do it PT is the antidote for ill will now ill will is our second hindrance and the one we probably have the most trouble with it's every negativity that ever comes up as long as we justify our negativity I can't stand this person because he's awful no longer dependent upon the appreciation and praise and love of others in order to have a great pleasantness arising within us we can go home, sit down, close the eyes and there we are so although we haven't eliminated ill will and negativity we certainly have diminished it because it does, all that happens to us during the day doesn't have so much of a sting anymore because we have already learned that we are dependent upon our own ability to have that kind of pleasant abiding when the body doesn't have a home it is always prone to all the unpleasantness of the climate if it were to live on the street it would have to bear with the weather in, and also with the passers-by but it has a home and now the mind has found a home because it knows it can go inside and remain there for the length of time that it wants to be there and having found that home even during the day while the ordinary life goes on it knows very well it can go home just like the body can go home and rest in its armchair or lie down on its bed but now the mind has a home it's never had a home before it's always been victim to its thoughts to its likes and dislikes it's always been pushed around by all the things that happen outside of us now it has opened the door to this home which has much more beautiful rooms yet but at least it's inside and it can protect itself that's a resid residual effect 
And having adjusted, which is the third step of the meditative process, preparatory, adjoining, and then adjusting, having adjusted to that means that we have found our pathway. So from a practical standpoint, once we get in there and experience this utterly present sensation, at the end of it, there are two things that need to be done. At the end, meaning either the meditation time is over or the concentration time is over, whatever happens first. So at the end, there are two things to be done. First is, that too is impermanent. Not, oh, wasn't that nice, how do I get it back? But that too is impermanent. Second, how did I get in there? My pathway, from beginning to end. Now the pathway stops. With the meal one has taken or not taken, with the rest one has taken or not taken, with the thoughts one has had while we're entering the meditation hall, with the way one has sat down, with the ideas one has had in the mind before starting to meditate, everything is of importance. Anything that one finds, and that applies to any meditation that we think has been a good one, not only to when it comes to the point of of gaining access to the um, sensation. Anything that has been a little different and has possibly helped to make the meditation better needs to be remembered so that we can do it again. It's like finding one's way in the dark. Up to now, our mind is like a dark canyon where everything is chasing about and in that dark canyon, once in a while, we see something a little more distinctly, and we think, oh yeah, that must be right. And then we see something else more distinctly, and then we say, oh, that's right. And so we keep on chasing after those things that are going about in this dark canyon. But as we learn to meditate, we need to have the light on for this pathway, so that we know every step on the way, what's good for me? Do I need to rest beforehand or do I not to? Do I need to eat more or less? Or am I eating correctly? Or what do I need to think about when I sit down? Do I need to arouse my doubts or my confidence? Can I self-surrender? Have I self-surrendered in this particular moment? What have I done? Anything, even the smallest thing, may be of significance. Maybe I sat differently kept my legs in a different position, kept my back in a different position, my head, anything, anything at all may be significant. And it is very easy at the end of this concentration to go back immediately over the pole path and realize this particular thing helped me. And that then, of course, one has to redo every time. So we need to find this pathway. And when we have done that and are able to get in anytime we want to into this house and stay there for a certain length of time, that's the next step. That's the ripening process. The mind is ripening into meditation. 
Ill will is compared by the Buddha to a bilious disease. Who the one who has it, of course, has the disease, not the one we are getting angry at. He may or may not have it. We've got the disease. He also compared anger with picking up hot coals with one's bare hands and trying to throw them at somebody else. Whether we hit the other person or not is a mute question. He may be a practitioner and able to duck. But who gets burned first? Obviously the one who's picked up the hot coals. The one who's angry gets hot inside. And this anger and ill will is the one thing that keeps one from peace and joy. And as I said before, if we still think it's happening outside of us, we must remember the jack-in-the-box effect. It can only jump out because we've got it. We all have the five hindrances, and they are diminished over and over again on this path but they only disappear through one's personal experience of Nibbana. Gradually, progressively, more and more. Even the very first experience, which I mentioned already as three doesn't touch hate and greed. So can you imagine the amount of hate and greed in the world where people mostly don't even practice, never mind have a first glimpse of Nibbana. And if we keep that in mind, we might never again be surprised at what's happening in the world, but just see it for what it is and get determined to transcend it because nobody else will do it for us. We've got to do it ourselves. The um, various disease of anger and ill will is, includes every negativity. It can be dislike, it can be resistance, rejection, it can be um, um, not caring, it can, anything that's negative is included there. And the um, water pond is compared by the Buddha with one where there's a big wind going and we have huge waves in the water. We can't see our likeness. Once we really get angry, all we know is the anger. Some people have anger arising and ceasing, which is a sort of a um, quick effect, comes quite often, but doesn't last. But then there are others that have a smoldering dislike within them and it's there practically all the time and it comes out when the proper trigger has happened. For them it's more difficult because they don't even know what it's like without it. The others that have this quick arising of anger and the ceasing again, they know what it's like to be without it because in between they've got moments of non-anger. But the one that's got that smoldering dislike and the smoldering negativity for them is very difficult because how do they know what it could be like without it? There's no way of knowing that. It's like that very nice 
story about the fish and the turtle. The fish and the turtle are living together. They're friends. They're living in a nice little lake. And they have a very nice time. But one day, the turtle decides she would like to see the world. This lake can't be all of it. So she says goodbye to the fish and says, I'm going on a trip. So she climbs out of the lake and walks around on the earth and sniffs on the flowers and sees the grass and sees the beetles and the um, rainworms and all sorts of interesting things that she's never seen in the lake and uh, breathes nicely in the sun, sun in the air. And after she's walked around for a while, she thinks, oh, I must tell my friend the fish about this. He'll be delighted. So she hops back into the lake and finds a friend, fish, and says, you know, I've been on earth. Very nice. He says, what's it like? He says, oh, it's solid. So he says, oh, solid like the water, huh? She says, no, not solid like the water, solid like earth. He says, well, I don't know. She says, and it's got very nice grass and flowers. He says, oh, like the coral down here. He says, not like coral. It's like grass and flowers. He says, well, I don't know. And she says, and you know the sunshine. And he says, oh, the sunshine. What is that like? Well, it's very warm. He says, oh, it's like this spot in the water where it's warm. She says, no, 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 it's not like that at all. It's a big ball that shines on you and it makes you feel very warm. He says, a big <laughs> ball that shines on you makes you feel warm? I don't want any part of that. <laughs> it's impossible to tell somebody who's been swimming in a lake all their life to tell them what's like on earth. It's the same with a person that's beset with a smoldering and ever-recurring uh, dislike and negativity which only very rarely is put aside when something very strong happens. So such a person finds it a little more difficult, but the meditative experience will even cure that because it becomes quite obvious what it's like. The Buddhist this prescription for daily activity against dislike and ill will is the loving-kindness meditation and the loving-kindness action. I've already talked about loving-kindness and love better. And the loving-kindness action that he prescribes is using every opportunity to show one's love in word and deed. He even prescribes giving presents, particularly to those people one doesn't like so that there is that kind of connection made. It isn't for the sake of other people. It's strictly for the sake of one's own well-being. Ill will and well-being do not go together. Ill will is hard and heavy and sad and it has a sort of barbed feeling about it. Whereas love and compassion is soft and flowing and has a feeling of 
being together and not having to protect oneself because one is already protected. Evil is our most bothering quality and those people who have a lot of that are really interested in practice. So they have a great advantage there because they have finally found that it's too unpleasant to carry that ill will any further. Now ill will also contains or is includes fear. We cannot fear what we love. We only fear what we hate. So fear is included. The more ill will, the more fear. The more fear, the more ill will. Fear is a human condition. And we give it different names. Some people are afraid of the dark. Some are afraid of spiders. Some are afraid of snakes. And lots of people are afraid of other people. Especially those they don't know. They're also afraid of old age, sickness and death. They're afraid of uh, not having enough money. All sorts of ideas. We may give it names. In reality, it's all one and the same fear. The fear of elimination. Not necessarily physical, although that also plays a great part in it, but the fear of the elimination of the person through whom we call me through emotional upsets or through not getting what we want. Always that fear, the fear for me. So because there are so many possibilities of fearing, there are so many possibilities of hating. Anyone who doesn't support our ego illusion, our ego assertion, is someone we can quickly dislike. Because that's what we're afraid of, that this illusion is not going to be supported. We don't call it an illusion, we just call it me. But it is, that's what it is. If it were not an illusion, why does it need so much support? Anything that really is, doesn't need a support system. Nothing at all. It doesn't have to be loved, it doesn't have to be praised, it doesn't have to be looked after, it doesn't have to do anything. It is. It's just there. But this me, which is the within our thought and feeling system, always needs all that. Particularly the support system of being appreciated, cared for, loved, known, and so on. So the fear aspect gives us all sorts of opportunities to hate. We need to look at that and we need to know it. Knowing it doesn't immediately eliminate it, but at least we have the known in front of us instead of the unknown. And having the known in front of us, we will finally be able to do something with it. The pity itself, the lovely sensation, does not eliminate the fear except during the time that we have it. At the time that we have it, there's no fear because we cannot possibly have two 
focuses of attention at the same time. It's either that we're meditating and have that sensation as our meditation subject or we have fear. So what is happening there with fear and ill will is this, that we are cutting down on it. It's like a garden that has lots of weeds and of course lots of flowers. That's our heart and mind. Lots of weeds, lots of flowers. But if we don't do something about the weeds, they take over, like they do in any garden. And every gardener knows that he has to pull weeds every day, otherwise they'll get bigger than the flowers. And if the weeds get bigger than the flowers, they take the nourishment out of the soil, and they also cover the flowers so that no rain or sun can get to them. So we have to keep cutting them down. They have long tap roots, our weeds, so they're difficult to uproot. They only get uprooted through insight, but they get cut down through calm. This, what I'm explaining, is obviously calm meditation, going from the sustained application to the first step where we experience something different from what we have experienced so far. So we uproot through inside, but we cut down through calm. And because they've got taproots that are enormously long, they are ingrained in our system, the cutting down of those weeds is a necessity because if the weed is shorter and smaller and more, more puny, the root also becomes much weaker. And then the uprooting is easy. Without that preliminary aspect of calm, the uprooting is an impossibility. So we go this pathway and to cut down the weeds in our hearts so that every time we see them, we know that they're doing us no good at all. We support the meditation through our daily practice using each person that we meet as a learning process of creating a loving environment in our heart and therefore a loving environment around us. It's a learning process. Each person is our teacher. And if they become really obnoxious, they're the best teacher. Because to love the lovable Anybody can do it. It's not difficult to love a two-year-old that smiles at you and uh, gives you a kiss. But it's pretty difficult to love a 50-year-old who becomes abusive. So that's where we learn. That's our learning experience. And if we can manage to love that which is not apparently lovable, then we have really done something because then we can love very easily. To love the unlovable is the test. Meanwhile, we do the practice of loving that which is all around us. And then when we get the test, that's when we find out whether we can pass or not. It's exactly the same as we went through in school and at university. First we study over and over again, 
and then we get the test, the exam. And then we find out whether we've learned enough to pass the exam. The only difference is that in school and at university they used to tell us exactly the time that they were going to make the exams and the subject. But in daily life, nothing like it. Neither do we know the time nor the subject. Any time might be an exam. And when that exam comes and we didn't pass it, we can have a written guarantee that we're going to get exactly the same exam again. We just got to go through it again. Just like it was in school and at uni. No difference. And the next time, we might have realized, aha, there's an exam. Now I'm going to do it this time, I'm going to do it right. Or we may not have realized the thing, and so we miss it again. And if we go back over our own lives, we might become aware of the fact that we've done four, five, six times exactly the same thing, till we finally woke up and say, hey, I've had the same response every time. Is that really necessary? Or we may not be able to find that. But if we do, it means that we've woken up to ourselves. And it doesn't matter how many times we have to do the same exam. We get a new one when we've passed that one until we finally, really and truly pass out because there's nobody there anymore to have an exam. But that, on the whole, is just a pass that we go, that's all. So we have an opportunity in everyday life to see everything as a learning experience where we can either try our best or, if it's too difficult, say, I'll pass this one. I'll try the next one. That's also possible. But eventually, we're going to have to even the difficult ones because if we really want to graduate we've got to take the most difficult exams too so in everyday life it's the loving kindness that we can practice and being kind to another person means that we take an interest in them an interest which is quite genuine Because if we just hand something over, like a present or like a word or something, with the idea in mind, hey, I'm doing that in order to help myself, well, that's going to come through. That doesn't work either. That it will help us is true. But it's got to be done out of the care and concern and love for others. And the more we realize that we are one, that there is no division, the easier it becomes. See, our scientists have known for decades that there aren't any solid building blocks anywhere in the universe. That everything that exists are energy particles that come together and fall apart so quickly that they give the illusion of solidity. They made the experiments in what's called the bubble chamber about 40 or 50 years ago already. The only problem that remained was that they didn't include themselves in this thing. They were the observer, but they didn't realize that they're part of it also. 
Because if they had realized that, they might have been enlightened by now. We are all the same. Energy particles that come together and fall apart. Interesting, isn't it? We don't see it because we have all this water element that keeps all these particles together. But once mindfulness is established to the point of being like a very powerful microscope, and that's what mindfulness eventually becomes, we can notice the constant movement that the body has, even when it sits totally still, and the constant movement that the mind always has, even when it's totally still. And then we know what that is. And because it's all around us, because everybody's the same, because every mind meditates exactly the same way, because all the bodies have the same elements, that separation idea vanishes. And with the separation idea vanishing, or at least uh, becoming less, our ability to extend ourselves in lovingness to others becomes far easier. And it becomes much more profound because we know what we're extending outward is exactly what we're extending towards ourselves for one and the same. So piti, the uh, sensation, is the first entry into meditation. Everything else is method. And it's a ripening process. And the ripening process then will turn into the maturing process, which I will explain tonight. And there are two more factors and two more hindrances, which I will also explain tonight. I'll leave you some time now to ask questions, if you wish. Getting deeper the ego is for me in, in this process, but what is it that's experiencing sensation that is not me? Wait. Taste. <laughs> 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 no. What I meant with wait was. Go ahead and do it, and you'll know. <laughs> but as I explain more and more, and as you practice more and more, it becomes clearer what it is all about, okay? I will explain all that, too, okay? It depends entirely on your intention, what the intention is. If the intention is, um, I want my house for myself, and this person is a nuisance to me, and uh, I'm bothered by that person, and let him fend for him or herself, uh, that would be ill will. But if the intention is, I think this person is too dependent on me, and I feel that the time has come that this person needs to stand on his or her own feet and maybe I can help that person by showing them a way of being independent. One doesn't exactly throw the person out, one kind of persuades them 
I would say. <laughs> it really, you have to in- investigate your intention. You know? Um, if, the, if the intention is even that one, which I have the second possibility, there is still um, an ego protection in it. But as long as we've got an ego and have this me illusion, we will always have that. So we have to, the Buddha certainly said that one needs to be together with the right kind of people. And he gave uh, a certain, in a, in, a, in a discourse, he gave certain things that one should avoid. And one of them is wild elephants. Well, you haven't got much trouble with those in England or in Germany or in Australia. Um, and you should avoid jungle thickets. Well, we don't have any problem with that either, but in the India of the Buddha, the people did have trouble with those two things. And one should avoid people who arouse constant negativity in oneself because one can't deal with that. One isn't able to. If one were enlightened, it wouldn't happen. Because if one can't deal with it, one should admit that defeat in oneself and say, I'm sorry, I can't deal with it. I'll come back to it later when I have, you know, grown more. So there is certainly um, that aspect to be taken into consideration. How one does it is skillful means, which is also something I will uh, hopefully still talk about, um, because skillful means well, they can be also acquired. We don't usually have them right on tap. So it's intention and skillful means. Both. Yes. In practice, or in practical terms, it's very difficult to follow the path of love and kindness to people if you find that you're constantly taking advantage of or hurt by other people. So how does one go about well, if one is being taken advantage of by somebody and one recognizes this quite clearly, uh, there's no need to be angry at that person. Everybody wants to get something for nothing. Everybody. So if they want something from one which one isn't prepared to give, one has to learn the art of saying no. That's all. There's even a book on that. The art of saying no. But there's no need to get angry at them. This is human nature. Everybody wants something for nothing. So that's what our whole economy knows. They give you a little bit extra so that you come and buy from them. No need to get angry. Yes? You talk about spiritual do you, do you mean Nibbana by the spiritual No. Nibbana is, a, is the summit of the mountain that one climbs. And knowing that that is the summit is enough. As one climbs, one needs to watch every step. The spiritual life is an inner growth, letting go of the negativity and substituting with the positive thought and emotion. And the spiritual life is an understanding that materiality is never going to be satisfactory. Man does not live by bread alone. He has to have bread to eat it, but that's all. 
And it doesn't have to be many different kinds of it anyway, either. One, one kind is enough. But the, the spiritual life is an inner growth process from one's ordinary kind of reaction, which is based on ego protection, to the kind of reaction which is purified. A purification process. That's a spiritual life. And one can do that anywhere. One doesn't have to be a monk or a nun. One doesn't have to be without a family. One can do it anywhere. There are, of course, situations which facilitate it, but the one one has is the one to practice in because that's the one we were given through our own karma. We, we have actually made that happen. So the spiritual life is the climb up the mountain. Spirit. Spirit is the uh, spirit. Seems the spirit of a person is there very often the kind of character they have, isn't it? Spirit of a person, and uh, then there's spiritualism. And that's got nothing to do with spiritual life. Spiritualism is getting in touch with spirits. Nothing like that. Spiritual life is inner growth. Inner growth and purification. That's all it is. And whichever other name one gives it, as long as it has Samadhi and Panya included, which means virtue, concentration and insight, it's okay. If it doesn't have any one of those three, it's to be looked upon with suspicion. Those three are the ingredients of a spiritual path. And one can use those as a guideline if one wants to check it out. They need those, one needs those three. So not to be confused with spiritualism or something like that. We are certainly, um, uh, have a, a lack of words which convey the um, um, pathway from the mundane to the super-mundane. And um, there's a monk in Thailand, very old now, Buddha Dasa, who has written a book, and it says, and it's called Two Kinds of Language. And in it he puts words that we use every day, and then the same word, what it means in the spiritual life. It's quite interesting, because we have to use the same words all the time. I have to use the word pleasant sensation, but it doesn't convey at all what happens. So one has to experience it in order to to know it. So And uh, spiritual life, well, it doesn't convey much, does it, until one does it. So it's always the same, and uh, we have that difficulty because we only have mundane language. The marketplace has fashioned our language, because that's what we're interested in. What we're interested in, that makes our language. So we have very few words which go beyond that. So we always have to make explanations. Anything else? Yes. Uh, I always, uh, in my reading from, from what you have said, uh, have thought that each person was unique. So now, is that, mm-hmm. giving, is that part of egoism? Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 <laughs> Look at me, I'm so unique. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, but the feeling of uniqueness is ego. Yeah. Physically or emotionally? No, physically. 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 Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, and it's all the process and consequences that I just can't do a job. How do you love this person? How must you love this person? You still must, of course. Well, yes, word must doesn't help us, though, does it? No. It doesn't help at all. Uh, train oneself. Okay, the person who wants to kill one, we have to, we can learn to have compassion for that person because we know that he's doing a very, or trying to do something terrible which will result in dreadful um, karma. So if we have compassion for that person, we have already diffused the biggest charge that has been laid. We're diffusing that. And with that compassion, as you may remember, the Buddha was able to tame a wild elephant. This wild elephant, it's a very famous story, um, this wild elephant was set upon him by his cousin, Devadatta. And this Devadatta was also a monk in the Buddha's dispensation. But he wanted to have the Buddha's job. He wanted to be the, uh, the head of the whole Sangha, of the monks and nuns. And... Uh, in other words, he was up on the executive ladder and didn't think he was up enough. So he wanted to be right on top. And the only way he could figure out to get there was to kill the Buddha. And uh, he tried three times without any success. And one of the times, that one of the ways he did it was by setting a wild elephant upon the Buddha. And uh, a wild elephant can kill a human being with one uh, swipe of the paw. It's just it's one moment and the person is dead. Wild elephants are, I mean, their strength is enormous. And the Buddha, the story says that the Buddha tamed this wild elephant with his loving kindness and compassion so that the wild elephant actually knelt down in front of the Buddha and removed some sand from his feet with his trunk. And then the Buddha blessed the elephant and he turned around and went back to his uh, um, dwelling place, which was in the king's palace. And uh, now whether this tr is a true story or whether it's one of these uh, symbolic stories, I wouldn't have any clue. But what it means is that love and compassion <coughs> are stronger than hate. And um, we have that in all traditions, in all religions, that uh, that uh, this that the lovingness can conquer the hate. Buddha, the Buddha said, "Love hate is never conquered by hate; it's conquered by love alone." This is that saying, and um, we're always waiting for all the swords to be put to be um, changed into. I mean, this is, has been 
the dream of mankind as long as mankind can remember. But we can't wait for somebody else. If not me, who then? If not now, when? There is only this moment. And if I'm not doing it, all right, well, I have to wait for somebody else to be doing it. But that doesn't help me. So, if that person should then kill me, well, so, so then what? <laughs> what does it matter? We're all going to die. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, being in robes is also quite normal. It's not abnormal. <laughs> and secondly, I think you mean the householder's life, huh? Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, certainly, one can lead a householder's life. It's uh, not, uh, not confined to uh, monks and nuns. And the householder has the same opportunity. It's just a matter of understanding. What is said in the in the canon is that once you have attained nibbana as an arahant, I mean fully fully enlightened, you will go to a monastery because you can't uh, handle the uh, or you don't want to handle all the worldly obligations that are beset the set a householder. But um, until then, until you've made it, you can do it anyway. My has been of interest in this. You know, I come from Sri Lanka, and one of our ancient civilizations, which is failing, failed and went bankrupt because it has so many hundreds of thousands of monks to support, so there's no work, <laughs> as you probably know. <laughs> Well, not hundreds of thousands. That wasn't. It wasn't that bad. Yeah, but you see, there's a um, that that kind of culture has had its drawbacks, and uh, it has it has gone overboard. I mean, there's this absolutely overboard. There's a, it's gone to extremes. So if one keeps it in balance, it's uh, it's quite all right. You know. So to the uh, the support system for monks and nuns is nothing but the return for the teaching. I mean, where do you get the teaching from otherwise? You know, so there's nothing else. You know, any teacher at any uh, university or school gets paid, and nobody goes bankrupt because of that. So it's 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 just that. But if it goes extreme. And in Sri Lanka, there are quite a lot of extremes on that level even today. Uh, then it may become quite out of balance, and it is in in many ways out of balance. But if it's done the way the Buddha had in mind, oh, it's quite alright. Uh, nothing, nothing uh, difficult. <laughs>